Good morning. I'm Father Spencer. I'm one of the co-rectors here at the table. And this morning I have the honor of proclaiming good news to you all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Brothers and sisters, today we proclaim the good news that Jesus is revealing that the content of his reign is justice, and his reign of justice is enacted by surrender. Instead of sacrificing the other to establish his rule or reign, it is enacted by self-sacrifice on behalf of the other. Another way of saying this is his kingdom is enacted by love. This is Christ the King Sunday. It's also known as Reign of Christ Sunday. In our uh, series this year, we've been experimenting with using the Reverend Dr. Wilda Gaffney's A Women's Lectionary for the Church, for the whole church. And she refers to this Sunday as Majesty of Christ Sunday. This is the conclusion to and kind of the culmination of the, all of the travel that we've done through the liturgical calendar this year, and we'll start Advent next, next week. But as we come together on this final Sunday of the year, we're celebrating the reign of Christ. We're celebrating this already not yet kingdom that we've been invited into, even as we prepare to celebrate and enter back into that season of waiting in Advent. We're at the culmination of the year but we still look at the world around us and see that everything has not yet been set right. So for our final Sunday using this women's lectionary, Dr. Gaffney has paired us a few different texts that I think are are really interesting for what it means to celebrate or live into this reign, this rule and reign of Christ. Just a couple of last comments as we move away from using this lectionary. It's been a really rich experience. It's been challenging at times. It's challenged us to not just use exclusively male pronouns when we speak about the divine, which has also helped me to expand the language I use and expand my imagination when thinking of God. We've been challenged not to overlook people who are often overlooked in scripture, not just women, but other marginalized people and voices as well. And these challenges all along the way have been drawing us into a deeper, faithful wrestling with what's going on in scripture. And so, fittingly, on this final Sunday of the year, Dr. Gaffney challenges us once again to reconsider our assumptions about the rule and reign of God. In our second King's passage, Jehoiakim surrenders. That's basically the entirety of the passage. It's talking about the surrender and then who is taken captive. It talks about the king, the royal family, all the artisans, the smiths. They're taken captive. (laughs) And it's kind of a passing comment. It says, only the poorest people in the land were left. They were deemed basically just not worth the trouble of moving, right? We don't know what to do with these people. They'll just stay here. They're kind of tangential to any worldly reign or kingdom. It seems odd to pair a passage like this with Christ the King Sunday. Maybe it's just to use this seemingly failed rule as a comparison to Christ's rule. In Psalm, not the way that Joel sang it, (laughs) but if you read it, it could be easy to read in all of our assumptions about what the monarchies in the world have looked like into Christ's kingship, this reign that oppresses other people. Christ is just another one of many reigns. This one's going to be the best, but there will still be people that are oppressed because that is the nature of someone ruling. 
And so if we pair the Psalm passage with the Second Kings passage, it could be easy for us to think, okay, well, Jehoiakim had a failed reign, but Christ's reign will be eternal. Christ will subdue people and put nations under Christ's feet for eternity. But it's God, so we need to get on board. This kind of evokes, for me at least, an imagination or a vision of kingship that is enacted and maintained through control, through worldly means, through oppression. It's hard to think about kingship in this way and not think about colonialism, you know, kind of taking the globe by storm, by force, forcing other people to be a part of your kingdom. And so some of the language that's in the psalm, for me at least, evoked some of those imaginations for what a rule and reign could look like. So then, I guess looking at those two, we have a failed reign, and we know that God's reign will be eternal and successful, but we don't yet have the fullness of imagination to undergird a new reckoning with what a ruler could do to set things right. In Hebrews, we see that this God that has been described in Psalm 47 as being the most powerful being in the universe, the creator and Lord of all, has become flesh in Jesus. This Hebrews passage says, The sun is the brilliance of God's glory and reproduction of God's very being. And the sun undergirds all there is by his word of power. And towards the end of our Hebrews passage, God says about Jesus, Your throne is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your realm. You have loved righteousness and hated the law. So looking at just those three passages... We have heard that God's reign over the nations in the Psalms, and we think we know what that's all about. We know what it means to reign over nations. And we've also heard that Jesus is the reproduction of God's own being. A more simple way of saying this that we say a lot here at the table is God is just like Jesus. We've heard that. And so, having read these three passages now, as we always do, we turn to Christ, God in the flesh, to get a clearer picture of what Christ's kingship is all about. In Matthew, it almost mirrors 2 Kings in a way because we see a king surrendering. But it's not just any king. Here, we see the most powerful being in the universe, the creator and Lord of all, the divine, now in the flesh, giving himself over, not fighting back. The passage says he would not even defend himself from accusations to the point that Pilate was greatly astonished. He was given a crown, but it was a crown of thorns. He was given a scepter, but it was a reed. He was stripped and robbed of his clothes, given wine mixed with vinegar and mocked. And here we're confronted with a lot of our assumptions about what kingship looks like, what we're celebrating on Christ the King Sunday. Does it mean that Christ is giving this up now? He's surrendering in this act so that one day he can rule in the same way that we always imagine somebody ruling? that he had to give this up so that he could win the battle and lord over all. Dr. Gaffney, though, points out that this actually, this means, this surrender, helps us to get a a better, a clearer picture of the majesty of Christ. Dr. Gaffney says, The majesty of Christ is not found in treasures of temples or palace, burgled and broken apart, but in a crown of thorns, beaten in by bullies, and in his battered and denuded body, This human, mortal, woman-born Jesus is the glory and majesty of God. 
In the words of the epistle to the Hebrews, the brilliance of God's glory and reproduction of God's very being, that humanness shared with every girl and woman, every boy and man, every non-binary child and adult is also the majesty of Christ and our own. So Christ's suffering is unto a reign. His death is unto his conquering of death. But the thing, the very thing that we are being saved for, that creation is being saved into, which is justice, is also the means by which Jesus is winning that battle. And that is the method through which he will rule. Jesus' death penalty is the ultimate form of marginalization. The, the passage says, They divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. This is the first of many direct quotes from Psalm 22, which continues in this narrative of this person feeling abandoned by God and being restored by the end of it. Jesus here is revealing to us that the poor who earlier in 2 Kings weren't even worth the trouble of moving and being taken from, taken from the land are actually central to his kingdom. And so here we see a king surrendering once again. The passage in Matthew concludes by saying that they kept watch or kept guard. And this also is just another microcosm. It's another example of the ways that we imagine ruling or forcing things to happen the way that we want them to. The only way to make sure that you win in this situation is to keep guard over Jesus' body. If he dies, make sure he stays dead. Power, force, and coercion, those are the methods and the means that we pursue what we want. But here, once again, we see the inadequacies of this approach because we know that even as they stand guard, they can't keep Jesus dead. Jesus is revealing that the reign of God is not a reign of terror, friends. It is a reign of justice and love, and you are free from believing that you need to get it right by any means necessary. Because kingdom means always match kingdom motives. The way is the same as the truth and the life. The way is love. The answers to why, how, and what now are all the same. God is saving you because you are loved. You are being saved by and with love, not through performance or qualification, but through self-giving love, the self-giving love of the divine. And now we are free to live our lives in this way, motivated by love on behalf of others. I was having a conversation last night with some folks in my family who were raised in the same churches that I grew up in and have all kinds of questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus now because they don't feel like they experienced that growing up. The word dogma was thrown around. Questions were asked about that. But I think when I read this passage, when I think about what it means to follow the rule and reign of Christ, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's almost like I was raised at one point in time with like a, a, an answer template, you know, like a Scantron answer template that you could just put down over life and it would tell you exactly what to do in every situation. And I think that that's often the purpose or the role that dogma serves. But in this faith that we've received, we don't have a one-size-fits-all answer because that's just not how life works. Any relationship, any conversation, any employment, those things are always changing. And so what we have is better than that. It's not a one-size-fits-all answer, but we know that the motive 
and the end will always be the same. Love. And that empowers you to be free. You're free from having to, to nail it, to be perfect. But you're free to move into any situation, even if you don't know what the result of it will be, knowing that you are only purposed to pursue love in that situation and setting. You are free to discern how to be present in ever-changing circumstances, and you are equipped with the Holy Spirit with the never-changing motivation and method of love. You're free from hate and fear, and you are free to receive God's love today and to go and find ways to love others. Find myself needing this good news, especially around this time of year, when we're around people that we maybe don't see all the time, and we have hard conversations. But you, friends, as you move into this holiday season, as you're just coming off of Thanksgiving, potentially, maybe there was hardship there, or maybe there was people not around the table that would have been a few years ago because there's broken relationships. You are free from having to know exactly the right thing in every situation, but you're free and empowered and called into pursuing love on behalf of the other. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.